Good morning. Today, I will be speaking from Psalms chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn there, please stand with me as we read God's Word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on the law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the, wicked, of, the, of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word, that we have access to it, and that we can be together as a congregation to worship you and learn what you have to teach us. I ask that only your truth would be heard here today. Please help us in our understanding and that we might have a more complete view of your word. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So over the summer, we will be going through the first 10 chapters of the Psalms. And today I have the privilege to get to speak on the first chapter. So if you still have your Bibles in front of you, we will be starting in verse 1. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So, who is blessed? Psalms 32, verses 1 to 2 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This will not be of our works. It will be the works of Christ that have been placed on us. If we move further into Psalms 34, verse 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So, the one who is blessed takes cover in him. They run to him. And lastly, I want to look at Psalm 65, 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall, be we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. In these later parts of the Psalms, you get an idea for context. Who is blessed? It's who are saved by grace and who put their trust in God and will be satisfied by him alone. Those who see and taste that their Lord is good. So, there are things that the blessed man does not do. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners, and he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. So there's a YouTube channel out there. I don't remember quite what it's called. I think it's Jubilee or something like that. They discuss uh, middle ground. They take two people of opposite views, and they have them go into a room, and they're to discuss to see if there's a place of agreement that they can somehow come to. In the end, they can smile at each other and call it progress for half a second. <laughs> we value niceness. We want to both be right. But the problem with this particular channel 
When we're talking about things such as the topic of abortion, that's when it gives credence often where it's undeserved. And when we're doing that, we are taking counsel in the wicked. It's not what we have in common. It's where we differ. We so often desire to be loved or liked more than we desire truth that we put it aside and squeeze it into our worldview. Kind of how Matt was talking uh, this morning at Sunday school. We, uh, we pridefully want to have their approval. I've seen people bend what the Bible says, saying, well, if they're a victim of rape or some other nature, then they should not be forced to carry that baby. They equate the hardship that women face, not with the difficulties and tragedies they face, but in the case of rape, they, they equate it, the forcing to bear a child as the actual hardship. The middle ground here isn't to them simply, we want to help them and acknowledge, acknowledge the horrible sin that's been committed against them. They want a middle ground of some form of out. For us to tip the hat and say, if you're a victim of X, Y, or Z, we will allow you to vacuum, rip apart, and crush the skull of your infant. On Thursday, I got to see the ultrasound of my baby for the first time, and I can tell you it is in fact a human. <laughs> it has fingers and toes, and it was kicking and squirming, and it did not stop whatsoever. It was very much alive, and people are desperate to have the choice to get to end it for the sake of their own convenience. The thing called common ground here, or allowing the world to influence what's acceptable and have them teach us what circumstances are okay, is standing in the counsel of the wicked. If we start watering down what the Bible says on things to make it palatable for the sake of advisement of others, we are doing that. We are taking evil advice and using it, putting aside that which the word says otherwise on. The verse moves on to say, nor stands in the way of sinners. If we are standing in the way of sinners, it doesn't mean we're standing between someone and their sin. You may have seen in uh, a lot of movies or TV shows, there's this trope where the villain is about to attack the victim, and then some other character from the scene walks in the way and says, if you want to get to him, you have to go through me first. And then the next person steps in the scene, and me too, and me too. And eventually you find... The enemy in the scene is sheerly destroyed by sheer numbers and has no chance to actually attack the victim. But that is not what I am talking about here. <laughs> it means we are standing in terms of our actions. If I'm standing in the way of sinners, it means I am the one committing the sin. I'm the one standing in the ways of evil. There's a quote I've uh, heard from a few people but it supposedly came from Winston Churchill. It goes something like this. Never stand up when you can sit down, and never sit down when you can lie down. And uh, over the years, when I've heard my dad say this, he's often taken it one step further and said, why just lie down when you can sleep? <laughs> I'm pretty sure this passage was not what Churchill had in mind when he said this. I think the uh, quote's intent was more based on exerting more effort than is required. I don't know if the author of the passage in Psalms intended this, but if you look at it, you can almost see a progression of comfort in which the man moves, like the more relaxed states from the quote, from taking the advice and counsel of the wicked and acts upon it in the first verb, he walks, 
then he stands in the way of sinners, then he sits in the seat of scoffers. Ultimately, when we do any of these, we do all three simultaneously. When we take counsel in the wicked, we sin, and we are mocking God by taking our standard of truth and advice from evil. The man who is rejecting God appears to be given over to the natural path that his sin leads him on. Walking, he acts. Standing, he sins. And when he is deep-rooted in his way, he scoffs at the very nature of God. He hates God. He detests him. He suppresses the truth about him. And he tries to convince himself that God is not even real to begin with. But this he cannot even fully do. We notice when we read Romans 1, a progression of our sins. If you'd uh, be able to keep your finger in your Bible on Psalms 1, we're also going to flip ahead to Romans 1. We're going to start in verse 21 and read to the very end. I'll stop in between verses. Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Notice these next words. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshipped and served the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Notice, God gave them over to the things and after these things, notice now in verse 26, he does it again. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Part of God's judgment here is God allows us to be given over to the very evil thing that we often desire. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. I don't think these statements are hyperbole. I think this is the actual state that we are if we're apart from Christ. Notice now in the last verse, they aren't blameless or innocent or not accountable for what they're doing. Verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve those who practice them. A final point about sitting in the seat 
of the scoffer. If we look at Proverbs 19, verse 25, it says, Strike a scoffer, and the simple will learn prudence. Reprove a man of understanding, and he will gain knowledge. Notice, the scoffer in this case may learn from a beating, (laughs) but the wise can take instruction simply with a simple word. The scoffer refuses to listen to right and wrong. He is a fool, and he may have a stubborn attitude and a hardness of heart. Although the scoffer may learn, it is not from a teachable, humble spirit, but it's from the beatings that come from their very foolishness. So blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Psalms 1, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So, it's not just turning away from something and turning to something else. It's not exchanging one evil for a different evil. We need to turn to the right thing. We need to take delight in the law of God itself. In this very verse, we are still speaking of the man who is blessed. We see where his delight lies. It's in the law of the Lord. We take delight in the law of the Lord by honoring and cherishing God's word. Psalms 119 verse 47 says, For I find delight in your commandments, which I love. We also do this by recognizing it as power to sustain us and guide us. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When we dwell on it day and night, our thoughts and every aspect of our life is to be taken from the law of God. It acts as our guide to keep our path straight. And it shows us our need for a savior. So, in practicality, how does one meditate on the law of God? I don't know about you, but every time I hear the word meditate, I envision uh, like a Buddhist sitting with John Lennon cross-legged on the floor. And they're both trying to clear their mind to the point where they can reach a state of nirvana and sometimes they're going, or something of that nature. There's incense burning. But that is not what the Bible means when it's talking about meditating on his word day and night. To meditate is to know it, to ponder it, be in it daily, understanding the principle and when it calls for us and what it calls for us in our lives. It's the contrast what we take in with every input of life and test it with the word. To meditate, we have to know what it actually says. We see what it teaches. What are the principles that it points to? For those of you who were in Sunday school a couple weeks ago, Matt talked about applying principles of God's law to our understanding. We don't have a direct Bible verse, however, telling us not to do heroin. However, in principle, we can apply Ephesians 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We don't read this woodenly as don't drink wine. We read the principle of it. Another principle that would be applied would be found in verse First uh, Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We don't alter our state to a stupor or a high where our judgment and discernment gets impaired. We need to be filled with the Spirit. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And if we are doing heroin or things of that nature... We are not in self-control. Also, 
To meditate is to understand the full picture of the Bible together. Not just a whole bunch of short stories, but all the stories pointing to one big story, pointing to Christ ultimately. When you go into the Word to meditate, we don't just rip out the pages of the ceremonial law because of its fulfillment. We see how it points to Jesus. When we see the Passover, we don't simply see a quick fix obscurely designed to mark the doors with blood because they didn't have a bright enough can of orange spray paint. He uses the lamb's blood intentionally, which was fulfilled in Christ's own blood, which covers us, kind of like how the blood covers the door. Like Matt's sermon last week on the story of Noah being a foreshadow or a type pointing to baptism, it demonstrates Christ's death and resurrection, how we are buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. To meditate day and night, the word should not just be a lingering thing there lightly. It's, it's not like a mild case of tinnitus that just gets there when it's quiet enough that you can actually hear it. But it guides and it applies principle to every thought and decision we make. It is at the forefront. We see God's glory in it all and we praise him constantly. Verse, Psalm 1 verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither in all that he does. He prospers. We are to meditate to be like trees planted by streams of water. We want to be this person. Who is this that's being talked about? A symbol of a big, strong tree, this unshakable thing. The meditation is like pushing the roots into the streams of water. But what's the water? The water is his word in which he meditates. The root of this man's trees are constantly in his word. It sustains, keeps him healthy, flourishing, green. Unlike the wicked, dying of thirst leading to death, only to dry out, to be burned in the pyre. When referring to the man who trusts in the Lord, written almost just like it is in Jeremiah 17.8, which says, They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The fruit is its evidence, showing in its season. But notice, if we take a look at the Psalm 1-3 and we contrast what we just read, in 17.8, it says, no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. As long as we are there, we are planting and we are bearing fruit in its season. We see the concept represented throughout scripture even further. And we see uh, symbols and pictures of a tree planted by water. And some of these times we see it is in Genesis 2 verses 9 to 10 with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life, which also gets referenced later in Revelation 22. In Genesis 2, verses 9 to 10, it says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of, good, of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, 
and there it divided and became four rivers. And then we read in Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. It's twelve kinds of fruit, yielding each fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. We see they are told to eat from uh, each tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, if they eat this tree, they will surely die. When they partook, it caused them to have a corrupt view and do what was good in their own eyes. When we humans do that, it leads to all manners of broken relationships, violence, and death. When it was providentially the plan for them all along to take of the tree from a bird's eye view of history, there is speculation that the intent of design was for it to eventually be eaten from after a prohibition period of a sorts. After they succeeded upon passing a test, so to speak, God may have made right for them to partake of it because they took it prematurely, they fell. We can't look at this as slipping out of God's reach ultimately, though. A type that would point to this premature taking on Christ would be on Christ's time on earth. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the, de- in the desert, remember, Satan is aware, because of Genesis 3, that the, woman t- the woman's seed will defeat him. If the second Adam does not crumble the way the first Adam does, he is doomed. Satan is desperate and his back is against the wall. Interestingly, Satan's offering for a couple of the things were not out of Christ's behalf. Satan challenged Jesus, saying, If you are really the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Bread was inherently not evil in itself. Also, when Satan falsely offered him the kingdoms of the world, if he, Christ, only bowed down to him, he promised they would be his. There would be a couple major problems with this. They weren't to give... They weren't his to give, ultimately, and only God is to be worshipped. It would be wrong for Jesus to have all authority over all kingdoms. It was sorry, it wouldn't be wrong for him to have authority over all kingdoms. But it wasn't time. Christ had to die and be resurrected. Obviously, all authority belonged to God in the sense of the Trinity beforehand. The Father keeps the world safe for his son, the heir but the transfer to his son was yet to be made visible. After Christ's resurrection, when he gave his disciples the Great Commission, it was given with saying, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. He was to take the nations of the earth, but it wasn't time to take it. If he took it from Satan, which would have been a genuine temptation because Jesus was tempted in the desert, it would have short-circuited his power. Jesus was tempted the same way as Adam, probably much harder. Adam failed under ideal circumstances, and Jesus succeeded under impossible circumstances. The first Adam, when tempted by the fruit, had all sorts of foods around him, all sorts of fruits that he could possibly have taken from. When Jesus was tempted the same way, he was in the desert, probably surrounded by rocks, sand, dust, 
not much that's alive. That is not ideal. Both tempted in the garden, Jesus did not fail in the garden as well. He submitted to the Father. Christ was the second Adam who succeeded on a tree where the first Adam had failed. An innocent man paying the price for the man who was guilty. Another thing that this could point to is, another thing to see is Adam had his bride from his side when God used his rib to make Eve. Similarly, Christ's bride, the church, was made from his side when he was pierced. Adam and Eve, eating the forbidden fruit, in doing this, they became corrupt. In God's mercy, before they could eat of the tree of life, which would lead to an eternal life in this corrupt state, making their condition permanent. In this, God was merciful, and he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. He did this so that he could send his son to take on the punishment for our sins. In God's mercy, he also placed an angel in place to guard the garden. Being kicked out allowed for Christ to conquer the curse set on that day when they ate of the fruit. So someday, when we are made perfect, we may then eat of the tree of life. Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24 says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I want to use this all just to show you the pattern of the image used and the examples of the tree given throughout the word. But the point of Psalms 1 is showing God being a sustainer if we are in him. We see these images of God sustaining us as well in John 6.35. Christ calls himself the bread of life and says, whoever believes in him will never go thirsty, will never thirst. And also we see an example of the living water that Jesus talks about in John 4, that whoever drinks of the water he gives will never be thirsty again. Hence, if you plant a tree by a river, the water will continue constantly and not cease. God is our sustainer. Psalms 55 verse 22 says, Cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. In all that he does, he prospers. Notice the geography of the one who prospers. It's the one planted by the water. It's not always our idea of prospering. It doesn't mean that every business venture will work out or that everything that's prospering in your own eyes will be the case. But we know that those who love God all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Even when a drought comes, we are leaning into the word and being sanctified even as our world is falling apart. We are prospering if we are meditating in, in the law as the tree is planted by the water. So, can we be uprooted if we are saved, if we're in him? In the care of God, for eternity. Remember Psalms 55, 22 in the second half of the verse. Before he will sustain you, he will never permit the righteous to be moved. John 10 verse 28 says, 
I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What Christ did for us is irrevocable. You are bought with a price and you are no longer your own. Psalm 1 verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So, since I highly doubt there are any farmers here, I, the plumber, will explain what chaff is to you. <laughs> so, like husks on a, a cob of corn, it's, it's like the husk that surrounds seed on stuff like wheats and other cereal grains, but it's much lighter. So, if it's separated from the seed, the wind is able to blow it away because it is much lighter than the fruit that's within. So, I remember as a kid... I'd go out to the edge of the field around harvest time, and I'd, if it was ripe enough, you'd just pull on it, it would strip the seeds into your hand, you'd crumble it up, and then you'd blow it away, and then you'd just be left with the seed, and sometimes it was chewable enough to enjoy. Maybe this is me uh, admitting to theft. I don't think I asked permission. <laughs> but the wind drives away the wicked like the chaff. We could see the wind being the thing that changes with the age and how the spirit of the age is inconsistent. But what do I mean by that? In Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were following the course of this world, carrying out all sorts of disobedience. We followed it the same way that chaff follows the wind. Whatever the wind of our society or whatever the evil of our hearts says. I think I shared the story one time in Sunday school, but I'll share it again. I was once talking to uh, someone about what society sees as acceptable. We say something is okay because it's, or morally right because it's legal, or society says it's okay. We become the standard of right and wrong when we do this. I asked this unbeliever if there was any sexual perversion. He thought, he thought, he thought were wrong, and he uh, responded to the effect of, as long as it is consenting between adults, it's fair game. So I pushed it. I asked, what about bestiality and pedophilia? He did have a problem with that, and I said, good. But I asked him, but that view you hold on to is acceptable now, in this current climate. To detest these things would tell me now that you, oh, would, would you, I asked him if he would hold on to this forever. Would this be something that he would be willing to tweet about and say, pedophilia is wrong? And then 20 years from now, when society says, it's okay, they would look back and cancel him for what he said about it because he'd be closed-minded by the society's new standard. And he said, no, I, I would hold on to it, but I asked him if he would do it, if he would if he'd be willing to do something of that nature. And he said, no, because his understanding of consent might change. He said he wouldn't risk it. Brothers and sisters... We have allowed and acknowledged the consent of the young children today to take hormone replacement therapy and accepted their consent to mutilate the genitals of young children. It's not a big leap for a culture 
who accepts that to accept the consent even further. And that is how the wicked are blown around like the chaff in the wind. They bow to their gods, being the god of public opinion, sacrificing their own fruitfulness of potential reproduction, giving up real marriage for the fake worthless version of it, making men into barren women who don't beautify things, but make their world ugly and barren, and making women into low-budget, weak, low-fidelity men with more vinyl crackle than the music itself. In regards to the wind, if I am not planted by the water, if I am not rooted in God's word, and my nutrition of anything remotely good is as dry as the desert and reliant of whatever time I fall into, I am at the mercy of the spirit of the age. Whether it is the evil of Babylon, the feminist movement, the murder of Jews in the Holocaust, the alphabet people who demand we approve and give our blessing to whatever they say, whether it's communism or a big one today, the murdering of infants by their own mothers, all in the name of choice. Someday that one, that will be seen as the atrocity and the evil that it is, and we will look back with disgust like we did the same way with the Holocaust. People will be ashamed to admit where they stood on that side of history. But like the chaff in the wind, they will have to bow the knee to the next thing until every enemy of God is defeated. Psalms 1 verses 5 and 6. Therefore, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In verse 5, we see the therefore. It is the conclusion or effect in judgment that we see for those who are wicked, as talked about in the previous verses. There will be an eternal contrast between those made righteous and those who fall on judgment day unable to appeal to anything but themselves. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. This is stronger than just the sense knows about. Some have argued the word knows means to care for, but one commentary I read suggested a better way to read this is with affection and approval. Obviously this approval is not of our own doing, but it is of Christ who lives in us. But the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's final judgment and destruction. So unless you are covered by the blood of Jesus, that will be your fate. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would take what we learned today and that we would be able to leave here applying it. I ask that we would be a people who are constantly meditating on and in your word. Thank you for all you've done. I ask that you would bless the rest of the psalm series throughout the summer. Please be with us as we go into our week. Equip us with everything we need and draw us closer to you. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I invite the worship team to come and sing one last song. So, the charge is this. With the culture being given over to its shameful lust as it rejects the Creator, In every aspect of life, we as Christians are to take delight in the law of God. And like the tree planted by streams of water, 
We are to be rooted in God's word. We are to test what the world tells us against scripture, to meditate on every word of it, applying to every part of life. We cannot do this while walking in the counsel of the wicked or getting the stamp of approval from the world. The way of the wicked will not stand. It will be blown away like chaff in the wind. Their ways will perish, but God will sustain the righteous and never allow us to be moved. Praise God. And now for the benediction from Romans 11, verses 33 and verses 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For from him and through him and to to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.